But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> There's a... Uh, um, so the old uh, aviation school here in Nashua, New Hampshire, um, um, I'm drawing a blank on what it's called now. Um, I want to say Daniel Webster. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's right. Daniel that's Webster. That's right. um, kind of closed its aviation department um, in the last couple of years, which is kind of a sad story and a whole different story. But years ago, when before I really got involved at Nashua Airport, I would look at the airport and the area around the airport on Google Maps. And... Um, and I noticed something really cool about the aviation program at this school, all right? And it, what it reminded me of was back in San Jose, California, there's also an aviation school that has its kind of, you know, has classrooms there at San Jose Airport. And one of the airlines, I don't know, Southwest or somebody, had donated uh, a retired 737 to the aviation program. And they had it parked out on the ramp in front of the school building um, there at the airport. And they would use it for classes of one sort or another. And I'd read about it in the newspaper from time to time, and that's what it was all about. I was familiar with that. And so back to Nashua, New Hampshire, I was impressed that, that someone had donated them um, some sort of aircraft to 737 or something. Because from the Google Maps image, you could see it sitting right there in the quad in the middle of the school and for the longest time that's what I saw on Google Maps and one of the first times I ever drove over to that area I wanted to go and eyeball this but see this this airplane that was parked in the middle of the school grounds and I'm driving on and, and you kind of you know you, you, unless you want to like really be obvious and drive onto the school grounds you can't really see from the public roads into the school you know, into the quad and I couldn't see the airplane and I'm thinking oh well it's just because I can't get in and so then I said I'll just drive in so I drove into the school grounds and I drove to the place where the airplane should be and there's no airplane and I'm going, what the heck? How did they get this airplane out of here? This was a big airplane. It must have been a big deal to get it in, and, and now it's gone. And it was only after I did a little bit more research to discover that there never was an airplane in the quad of Daniel Webster College. It was an airplane that was caught at that particular instant by the satellite images as it was flying over Daniel Webster College. And it looked like, you know, because the, the perspective was such that it looked like it was the right size, even though it was probably, you know, a half a mile over, almost a mile up in the sky. From satellite's perspective, they were all basically the same height. And it fit perfectly right in the quad of Daniel Webster College. And, you know, uh, it, it, sometimes your mind just plays tricks on plays you. Plays tricks on you, yeah. And I see you you called our attention to the story. What's this story all about, Jeb? Well, if, if and we see this a lot, uh, I've seen it a lot, is, is uh, there's all kinds of artifacts that pop up in, in Google mapping and other satellite you know, imagery. Um, one of the one of the kind of cool things that that pops up is aircraft in flight that are captured by the camera. Mm -hmm. And in your end, the one the one you're referring to, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. But one of the one of the things that a lot of people have noticed over time is in, in looking at these Google Maps, the, the images of aircraft in flight are broken into like four different images. Oh, I see what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what's going on? Um, there was a technical explanation, but I'd never heard uh, exactly what was going on. The four different images happened to be of, of, of the, the three uh, primary colors, red, green, blue. Mm -hmm. And then a fourth image that is more of a composite yeah. that actually shows uh, a real world color, mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. 
Um, and I was like, how do, how do they, what's going on here with this effect is, is what's the, what's the, the Zen of all this? What's the science of all this? And I came across a, an article on the web that, uh, uh, well, what airplanes look like to Google map satellite cameras, but it talks about the technology involved and how the cameras are basically, um, uh, black and white cameras, mm-hmm. monochrome cameras, yeah. but they're looking at different wavelengths. Right. And and once and that's the that's the initial the first time uh, you know any electrons are excited, okay? Yep. Is is when they they snap this image and they snap it four different times, and or three different times I forget which, um, and um, but each each time they they snap this image, it's a different primary color. Yeah. It's a different yeah. uh, different technology being used, and this happens over some period of time. Sure. These, these images are captured sequentially. Um, during that time, the aircraft happens to be moving. Mm-hmm. We can't tell from a lot of this imagery how high the aircraft are, although it's unlikely they're you know, in, the, in the flight levels. Um, but the punchline is the, the Google mapping, the satellite imagery, captures uh, these three or four images during a, a short amount of time. The aircraft is moving, therefore... Each image is overlaid with each other, has a different color, sure. and it looks it looks completely like what the hey is that? Yeah. Well, well that's the that's the you know, the very dumbed down technical side of it. Yeah. And I, I'd always wondered about that. That's yeah, why I put no, it on. The image is cool. It's like uh, we just did some good acid right there. Yeah. Like, it's 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 definitely it's Pink Floyd territory. Psychedelic. Yeah. Yeah. Dark side of the moon. Here I come. I know. I, and I should let David, the camera guy, talk about this, and I will in a minute. But uh, this is how they did it. This is totally has nothing to do with airplanes. Back in the early days of motion color motion pictures, right. they had to do it with multiple pieces of black and white film, and they would project. I don't know whether they split the image with prisms or something like that, but the point is they ended up with multiple pieces of black and white film that were exposed through varying colored filters so that they would capture the the color information in black and white, mm-hmm. and then they merged it, you know, in printing. Um, and, uh, and it gets even weirder. In the early days, back way back when I first got involved with TV production, I went to school for TV production a long, long time ago, back when, you know... They had television Yeah, tell then? me about it, just barely, okay? But but one of the ways they get color in these really relatively inexpensive... You know, these days they have multiple chips and do all kinds... Back then they had, like, you know, one or two of these, of these television tubes that, you know, they didn't have chips back then. And they had tubes that you projected the image onto, um, it was sort of the reverse of a television screen, and uh, and I never quite understood it. But they basically did these weird things where instead of like grabbing the three or four colors distinctly separately, they would grab two of the colors and then doing optical math on those two colors, they were able to then figure out what the third color was going to be or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure there's a listener who will explain this to me better later on. Right. But uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah well, there's like this weird magic stuff you can do with, with optics. And Was it Warner or, or Turner or somebody a few years ago, maybe I say a few years ago, maybe 20 years ago now, was colorizing some of these classic black and white films? Yeah. And using a similar technique in it, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's a certain bandwidth, you know, that 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 uh, translates to certain colors in the real world. Yeah. David, and, you're quiet. What, what what do you know about this? Well, Jeb's right on on the uh, different captures uh, and happening happening sequentially, uh, but this is a throwback imaging technique to the original digital 
imaging sensor. Mm-hmm. They were scanning sensors. Okay, there was no shutter involved. The the chip would do uh, a rapid line by line scan of the image, then do another, and then do another, and do another, and combine them, and the result would be a color picture because of something called a Bayer filter. Mm -hmm. And the Bayer filter helped break the different colors in the spectrum down to a different electronic strength signal, as I understand it, that got shipped out by the chip. Yep. The processing didn't happen fast enough for them to do it all at once. Yeah. Uh-huh. But the original digital cameras that we carried around used a variation of the same technology. All the pixels were monochrome sensitive, mm-hmm. but the Bayer filter helped them determine uh, through electrical level the different colors that were passing through the Bayer filter. Uh, and you moved, that was with the uh, uh, ch- charge coupled device, yeah. CCD. Right. Now we have sensors that actually uh, pick up different colors distinctly. Uh, Sony's developed some of those. They are RGB with individual RGB pixels. Then the trick comes, where do you put which and how many of each? Uh, but this is basically the old technique mm-hmm. that does a scanning uh, imaging because of the speed of the satellite, it generally works because it can do a sequential scan and everything will be in registration because of the, how fast the satellite is moving and how fast the scan happens. Mm-hmm. You get this when the speed of an object in the viewfinder, if you will, in the shot exceeds the scanning or is actually exceeds the scanning rate of the sensor. Yeah. So instead of combining into one, this is combined into one, but you see four. You see shadows of the four primary colors, basically. Yeah, that's kind of cool. But yeah, well, images that, that you see printed in magazines and stuff are generally CMYK: right. cyan, magenta, yellow, and K is black for some reason. CMYK, and this is kind of a a, a really great illustration of that technology. Yeah. I mean, well, kind of th- abstract too. Yeah. Thank you, folks, for for joining this yeah, edition of of uh, uh, camera technology one hundred and one. I know. <laughs> it suddenly occurred to me, except for the fact that it was a picture of an airplane. This had nothing to do with airplanes. Uh, well, there, there's some spinoff here. To there, there's some spinoff from. Uh, oh, please tell us. Yes, yes. High speed photography used by reconnaissance airplanes. Uh, still, just barely aviation. Now we're taking pictures from airplanes. Taking hey, pictures from airplanes. Planes, but airplanes going very fast, and when I say very fast, sometimes we're talking about only a couple of hundred knots, but the speed was important because they were down low, so the relative motion between the lens or the, the film plane and what they were shooting yep. had to be adjusted for. I know. See? So well, that- the film actually moved behind a slit that was moving yep. in the shutter. Uh-huh. 
all related to the speed of the airplane so that they could get a crisp picture. I, I appreciate the effort, David, but we're still talking about optics. So uh, welcome, folks, to uncontro- really, truly uncontrolled airspace, a general aviation podcast. Uh, we really for are photographers. For photographers. No, no, we're going to talk about airplanes. I'm Jack Hodgson coming to you from uh, UCAP World Headquarters uh, in the uh, starting-to-be-colorful Letty Fields of Epping, New Hampshire. Um, here with my two good friends. Uh, Jeb Burnside's here talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? I'm doing well. This is the wettest place on earth, with the exception of Colorado. I was going to say, yeah, okay. Well, it's been raining a lot, huh? It's it's the dew forms. The grass is wet in the morning. Uh, before it evaporates, it starts raining. Has it affected the flying at all? The the air I haven't river? I haven't flown a whole lot lately. There's a there was a bunch of op- of uh, operations this morning here at the airport i i didn't see them i could hear them mm-hmm. yeah uh but uh yeah it's 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 kind of dampened my enthusiasm a little bit but uh then so again you know the, be- the best flying weather of course is before noon and that's just not going to work for me most of the time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also here my other good friend dave higgin talking to us from wichita kansas david if i may have your, have your permission to explain that uh um, that you are uh, recovering from a tiny bit of oral surgery and so your voice is a little odd today personally i think if you just drink a bunch of beers you will get back up to the point where your voice is clear well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to have clearance to do that in a couple of days. In the meantime, yeah, we had a little dental work done last week, yeah. and uh, the new appliances in there uh, changed the sound of my voice a little bit and can result in a little bit of a lisp, depending yeah. on the word I'm saying. So we should, get, we should get you some helium. There you go. Helium. Or what's the, there's a gas. Oh, no, we've got to talk about airplanes. We've got to stop this. Um, <laughs> What can we talk about? Oh, this is serious, this next item on the list. <laughs> See, we're going from, uh, I don't know what to say about this. Um, so there's this, uh, this cylinder, a proposed cylinder AD, right? Is that, what I'm, is that what this item is all about here? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is becoming a thing, isn't it? I mean, It is a thing. Uh, why is it a thing, Jeb? <sighs> um, <laughs> there's two or three reasons here. And let's, let's, do a, let's do my standard disclaimer here. I'm not affected by this AD, but I am affected by uh, another AD uh, that came out six or eight years ago uh, requiring 50-hour inspection or uh, compression tests of the cylinders in my airplane. Um, That's one of, I don't know, six, eight, ten um, cylinder-related ADs that have come out in the last ten years or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's Uh, been amazing. It's it's it, everything, uh, and and this has affected Dave. Step in here anywhere, but I think this has affected not only aftermarket cylinders, but um, uh, OEM manufacturing cylinders along the way. Not the, the OEMs have not been nearly as impacted, and some OEM cylinders I'm sure have been you know completely cleaned throughout this process or the, this time. But ECI and Superior, and if there was another aftermarket cylinder manufacturer out there, they'd probably be tagged with some of this, too. Um, it, punchline here is that uh, FAA has proposed yet another airworthiness directive against aftermarket cylinders and piston-powered airplanes. This is against e- ECI cylinders. And um, a lot of the alphabet soup is is looking at this NPRM, this notice of proposed rulemaking for the cylinder AD, and saying, "Look, guys, you just haven't made the case here." I think there have been like uh, um, six 
uh, failures over some period of time involving these these cylinders. Um, and there's thousands. There's, according to the uh, the FAA itself, a proposed AD would affect about six thousand aircraft, requiring either repetitive inspections or replacement mm-hmm. uh, of of cylinders. And there's like, uh, it's it's some ungodly number of cylinders that are targeted by this. And if you multiply that out by uh, how many airplanes would be affected? You know, trans singles, and there's there's like double digits number of airplanes. Or I'm sorry. Um, four digits worth of airplanes that would be potentially impacted by this, and a lot of money, $82 million involved. Mm-hmm. Now, 6,000 airplanes, um, is that totally spread evenly across the fleet, or are there particular airplanes that are getting hit, hit hard? 6,000 6, Continental engines with aftermarket PMA cylinders from Engine Components International. Uh, specifically, uh-huh. do these and, do these cylinders go into particular sized engines, or predominantly the five twenties and five fifties, if I remember? Yeah, right. these were these affected four seventies as well as uh, the five twenty, um, uh, five fifty. Um, um, I, I looked there, at this, and I don't have. Yeah, here it is. Okay, let me open this link. And they're all six cylinder. Oh, so they're relative. I mean, yeah, you know, that's the other thing. See, they're all six-cylinder engines. So, and a lot of these thirty-six-thousand cylinder yeah, assemblies. A lot, a lot of these engines um, have a complete set of six cylinders uh, of uh, affected cylinders here. Um, again, I'm not one of these directly affected by this particular uh, AD, but I'm, I'm affected by others. Um, and, excuse me. There's, there's just been a handful of problems with some of these cylinders. Um, but uh, the, the, the alphabet soup is all up in arms, and justifiably saying that, you know, the FAA hasn't really done the cost-benefit analysis to support this. Um, the NTSB is involved. They made some recommendations earlier this year. They've met with ECI. They've met with the FAA. Or I should say the ECI has met with both NTSB and FAA together. And talked about a lot of this stuff, and, and now here's the proposal. And a lot of people are, are pretty annoyed about it. It's expensive. Uh, it's it it could be it could well be unnecessary. Um, there's just a lot of noise going on right uh-huh. here. And I would imagine that that some percentage of the engines that get worked on to accomplish this AD, um, the work will introduce flaws, which well, will in turn that's. Cost- that's part of the problem. You start untorquing these cylinders, and you're also, because of the way that some of these engines are designed, you're also untorquing um, not so much the cases themselves, but the load being placed on, on the, the other structure, other structural parts of the engine. Mm-hmm. So you can easily, um, by changing all these cylinders out, um, loosen the torque on, on, on these components, retorque them, Everything's fine, done to, done to specification, but in the process, you will have, have you know taken the strain, taken the pressure off a bearing, right? A crankshaft bearing. When when the powers that be think about these kinds of of potential repairs, and and they they sort of say, okay, we think that ten incidents, ten people will get hurt as a result of this flaw, and as a result, we want you to fix it. Do they also factor in the fact that that the that the 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 work to fix the thing might produce twelve injuries? 
You know, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. I understand. Exactly do they what factor you're that in, or do, are they blind to that kind of a, of a side effect? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I think they're about to be. Whether they whether they've done that kind of research and analysis up to now on this particular AD, I would guess not. But it sounds to me like they're about to, because I think the industry is going to force them to. Yeah, David. Well, a friend of mine at the FAA years ago told me that a lot of the uh, analysis that goes into a proposed airworthiness directive is based on worst case scenarios on the problem and base, best case scenarios on the solution. Which I said, so they're assuming that all the mechanics would do this perfectly according to spec, according to package instructions. Yes. And that nobody would do it improperly. Well, nobody, it wouldn't get signed off by the uh, IA if it wasn't done properly. That's the theory. Except the IA is not necessarily there when you torque the bolts that hold the cylinder to the case, which is one of those, those, those studs are one of the items that uh, uh, suffers a little bit when it's loaded and unloaded mm-hmm. repeated, repeatedly, because it also changes uh, uh, how much strain is on it every time it gets hot and gets cold. Uh, so I'm a little bit suspicious of uh, this, whole, this whole move uh, as FAA... Somebody at the FAA saying, we need to do something here because the NTSB is pushing us, and we want to be able to stand up and say to the NTSB, see, we're following through. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of CYA going on here. Okay. Absolutely. And, and you know, part of this, <clears throat> you know, process is, you know, kind of sort of by design, but kind of sort of by, you know, happenstance is, you know, it's the FAA's job to overreact to a lot of this. Okay. Okay. We, we, so think we about went, that. Yeah. We before cylinders became the issue that they've been for the last several years, as Jeb was noting, we had the same repetitive kind of issues with everybody's crankshafts. Exactly. exactly. I mean, good God, we had AD after AD after AD on on different finishes and different forms of manufacturing crankshafts from different companies that resulted in a lot of rebuilds and a lot of replacement crankshafts. And some of it turned out to be unrelated at all right. to the problem right. they thought they were fixing. Exactly. Yeah. When, I, when I had my engine rebuilt, um, it's been uh, <clears throat> 10, 11 years ago now, I forget. Um, probably ought to have that information right at hand, but it's in the logbooks. Um, I had to buy a new crank uh, outright uh, because I, mine could no longer be you know, overhauled or returned to service because of an existing AD against it. Yeah. Um, put a new crank in it. I put new cylinders on it at the time. I did a lot of stuff to that engine in, in, in a field overhaul, and um, I bought the best, basically the best stuff I could find at the time. Yeah. Best cylinders, you know, brand new crankshaft, et cetera. And even buying the best cylinders I could find, uh, I still got hit with this AD. Yeah. Is there an online database of all ADs that are currently active? Yeah. Oh, yeah. F- yeah. FAA.gov. They do have it online. Yeah, I, yeah. I knew there's a database. I, I know it, that mechanics have been able to look this stuff up for yeah, years. Yeah, there's. You have to. Can uh, civilians look it up? Could oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, ADs you, are uh, ADs are public record. I, I know they're yeah. public record. I just want to know if they're online and searchable oh, yeah. to mere yeah. mortals. Yeah. That's my yeah. question. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. E- e- even the NSA could find this. Stuff. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, doing a whole different podcast, um, you and, know, and they would raise the terror alert. Uh, of I know. We could easily turn this into a drone podcast. I'm telling you, every single time we do this podcast, we could well, do like a whole thing on drones. A lot of us, a lot of us have been accused of droning on. And, Oh no! Thank um, you. You beat me, <laughs> and uh, and I just and uh, and and so I want to talk about drones here for just a second. Um, partly because I want to talk about something re- unrelated to drones, but related to the story. But first of all, let me say that uh, although we could, but aren't going to, I don't think, do a drone podcast. There is a drone podcast. If anybody's really interested in this kind of stuff and wants to uh, check out a podcast, you should. I, I gotta ask. You know, the drone podcast. Yeah. Is it is it done by remote control? <laughs> well, they're all done by remote control. Um, our our friends over at I believe now I I could be wrong about this, but I'm I'm pretty certain that it's our friends over at the Airplane Geeks podcast that have spun off another title that they are calling the UAV Digest, and uh, and you can learn more about the UAV Digest at uavdigest.com and uh, listen to their podcast about. Uh, it's funny. Apparently, the industry doesn't like to be. They don't like them to be called drones. Um, a recent episode of the UAV pod, uh, Digest podcast um, was titled uh, The D-Word uh, because uh, they've been asked by their friends in the industry not to refer to them as drones, which means I'm going to refer to them as drones all the which time. Which means I'm going to refer to them from now on as drones. As drones, yeah, I know. Yes. Huh? So uh, uh, go to, uh, go to uh, if you're interested, theuavdigest.com uh, for the UAV Digest uh, podcast. Um, what I wanted to talk about is, so you, you alluded earlier to to the uh, storms in Colorado. Right. And, of course, there have been some big um, um, other natural disasters, fires and things out in the western half of the U.S. And apparently drones are getting involved in uh, in, in helping with the uh, recovery and with the firefighting or the, the recovery effort, the firefighting and the uh, watching the flooding and trying to figure things out. Um, and that's kind of interesting. If there was ever a good use for these drones, this is probably one of them. Um, the story that I thought was, and so there are some stories here, we'll put them in the list, or Jeff, I hope, we'll put them in the list, um, about drones being used uh, for the uh, for the, f- the forest fires, I think they're in Colorado, but also, but certainly for the, the, the flooding. Oh, the Rim Fire in Yosemite, yeah, uh, okay. they used it out there in Victorville. And, uh, and, and in the Colorado flooding. But here's the interesting part, all right, is a story that followed up on this a couple of days later that talks about the fact that the drone operators who were sort of semi-professional, you know, kind of drone operators uh, try, pitching in and trying to help out, were apparently get, got a phone call from um, the FEMA people who said, you can't fly these drones, all right? We've got the airspace locked down, all right? And if you fly your drones in this airspace, we will come and arrest you. And uh, I, I just think, <laughs> yeah, I know, huh? <laughs> now, it turns out this is not all this unusual in terms of regular aircraft. Uh, the idea that the FAA uh, would put restrictions on the airspace over a natural disaster is not all, all that unreasonable. Um, but the idea that it would affect the drones, too, is kind of interesting to me. Um, well, it, any thoughts on this? Drones still have a small issue with that see and avoid thing. Yeah, but but most of these things don't fly very high or very far away. We're not talking about, you know, 
uh, you know, military drones here. We're talking about camera platform drones that are just kind of going up and flying a half mile away in order to eyeball some floods or some fires and and come back. And probably not going all that high AGL either. So, uh, you know, really? I mean, uh, I, I get that these TFRs, you, you know, are probably defined as to the surface, but really? Like, you know, a, a, an RC aircraft can't fly well, if, in a TFR? If the- if the drone being used for well. disaster surveillance is operated outside the line of sight of the operator, uh, then I agree with the FEMA people. Uh, oh, I do if too. If it but- can't be seen, if it can't be seen, it can't be maneuvered to avoid other aircraft. And remember, some of these other aircraft may be flying fairly low too for their own reasons. No, and I agree with that. I'm talking about the within sight of the operator. Okay. Well, do we know that was the case? I, uh, well, let's assume it was. Uh, is that still Why? restricted? Jeb, you're trying to jump in here. What were you trying well, to say? Well, not, not so much trying to jump in here. I, I just pulled up um, a um, uh, just a recent AD. I mean, I'm sorry, a recent TFR. Um, and I wanted to look to see what it had to say about model aircraft or remotely piloted aircraft. Um, okay. The following, this is uh, subsection or paragraph E of this AD, it's, I'm sorry, TFR, TFR yep. it's uh, FDC uh, Notum 3-6522, effect, issued today, effective for New York, New York City. And um, you skip down, da, 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 da. the following aeronautical operations are not authorized within this TFR. Boom, 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 boom. Model aircraft operations, model rocketry, really? and, and unmanned aerial systems. Well, model rocketry, okay. Um, and unmanned aerial That's interesting. They make that distinction. Yeah. Yeah. But, okay, it's right there in the TFR. So it's right there in the TFR. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I know, let's go back and let's look at some of the uh, disaster response. This is uh, Larimer County, Colorado. Um, um, no detail on that one. Let me look here at another one. Uh, yeah, this just says, no pilots may operate an aircraft in the areas covered by this notum except as described. Uh, but I don't see the the details on uh, uh, the, re- the notum that I <clears throat> excuse me read, through, read from at first is a VIP notum um, as opposed to one of these recovery notums. Uh, that are pretty much covering a lot of Colorado right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, it, depending on what the notum says, absolutely, you, you're not going to be, you shouldn't be flying legally a uh, UAV in that airspace. Okay, okay, David, any last thoughts on this? Nope, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation. Remember your training and fly the airplane. But you knew that. I don't know why this airplane makes me think of David, but I look at this airplane and I immediately think of David. I, I think it's, it's your ultralight background, you know, and it's, uh, have you seen this video? This is a... Uh, I can't, I haven't been able to get through the ad. Yeah, well, you, you it'll let you skip it after a couple seconds. Yeah. And, uh, just, just skip past the ad. Oh, the cree-cree. The cree-cree sure. or the cricket. Um, and, uh, well, now I'm just noticing the video is labeled 1973. I can't imagine this is that long ago, but maybe it is. David, are you familiar with this airplane? 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is. So let me first describe it. Um, it's a very small, one-place, low-wing um, aircraft yeah. with two for, for, little air little engines mounted on the uh, to the right and left for, of the nose. First off, the video's from 2005. The design is from 2000 uh, from 1973. Okay, so this is pretty recent. Um, this is apparently new, an air show in New Zealand uh, where this guy apparently was a fighter fighter planes air show, and for some reason they brought this cool little. Uh, oh yeah, I can see that adorable little airplane. Uh, apparently, the guy flying it is a serious fighter pilot guy, uh, retired, I guess. But the Cree Cree is a French design. Cree Cree is uh, we were told at the time. French for cricket. Yeah. Well, it, and it showed up in the U.S. in the very late 70s and the early 1980s at the peak of the ultralight boom. Uh, and there were one or two other ultralight legal designs that also used twin engines, mm -hmm. like the Cree Cree does here. Yeah. Uh, because the engines were so tiny and light, but together produced the kind of power that was needed for the performance. Uh, this is a nimble little airplane. And it, it looks cool flying. The video shows it flying um, in the pattern here um, at this air show. Um, just to finish the description, so um, very small. Um, I would estimate it's maybe 15, less than 20 feet long, nose to uh, tip of the nose to end of the tail. 12 to 15. Yeah. Uh, T-tail uh, uh, empennage. Uh, like I said, low wing, fixed gear. Yeah, um, you got to have the T-tail. Otherwise, that canopy bubble would keep the uh, horizontal yeah. surface out of the airflow altogether and great big canopy almost everything above the you know sort of uh, fuselage top of the fuselage line is is a uh, is clear well yeah. every kit comes with a man-sized shoehorn <laughs> yeah i would think um <laughs> but it looks a little bit nimble uh, it shows the guy flying this thing and uh and oh it's very responsive he, he gets it off the ground pretty fast and 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 does some maneuvers he's not like flying straight and level in the pattern he's he's you know yanking and banking a little bit uh, in this video and uh, it's kind of cool you, it's you, all aluminum it's an all aluminum kit or if if they're still available, uh, I don't know. I haven't checked lately, but it's an all-aluminum airplane with a little uh, two-stroke engine uh, on each side on a little pylon, a uh, little carbon fiber props turning at direct drive speeds. Oh, really? So hearing protection is essential. Oh, yeah. Uh, the puppy really turns. Uh, I would Very maneuverable, and if you remember that there has to be some structure underneath the seat to stiffen the bottom and make it rigid enough to carry the loads. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that canopy has to be that tall simply so there's some place for the head to be. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So he's sitting on some sort of longitudinal <clears throat> spar kind of thing, you know. He's sitting on, probably on, sitting on the main spar, yeah. Yeah, so anyways. Yeah, the main spar is right under the seat. Uh the, the ones that we used to see at Sun and Fun and Oshkosh every year, uh, pretty easy to pull the seat up, pull some pins out, take the wings off, put in a little tiny trailer, and take it home. Mm -hmm. Now, so they did fly these in the U.S. Oh, yeah. How were they, they you know, certified or, or, or under what rules? This is a twin-engine aircraft. Well, ultralight rules don't, re don't limit. There's nothing in Part 103 that says single-engine okay. or multi-engine. Uh-huh. Uh, so we had uh, a design called the Laser, mm -hmm. which was a larger airplane, uh, slower, also with twin engines on little booms, that was really meant to be a quasi-motor glider. 
you could shut the engines off and okay. soar. Yep. Uh, you needed to be confident in that because most of them started by hand cropping. Uh, so, yeah, there's nothing in Part 103 that says that it has to be a single-engine airplane. Uh, just like there's nothing in Part 103 that says anybody has to check the construction, the design, the airworthiness, or the pilot qualifications. Well, and pilot yeah. qual- I'm sorry, Jeff, go ahead. No, 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 absolutely. Go ahead. I was just, the, the other question I have, though, has, you talk about pilot qualifications, has to do with twin engine operation. Um, are, are, does this aircraft have any particular issues with single engine, you know, out kind of thing? Is there, I mean, the engines are pretty close together, so maybe you're not going to get a lot of, uh, of, of, you know, what's well, the word the, for it? But uh, twisting, uh, you know. Part 103, part 103 basically says nothing more than this. 254 pounds maximum empty weight, no more than five gallons of fuel, no more than 55 knots straight and level speed. Now, Cree-Crees will go a lot faster than that. They dialed them back when the rule came out, and eventually people said, well, it'll go so much faster, I'm going to build it as experimental amateur built, and went back to, I think it'll do about 80, 90 miles an hour. Uh, day VFR, uh, there's a stall speed limit. I believe it's 27 knots. Uh, I haven't looked at it in a while. Uh, that's it. And yeah. no con- don't fly over congested areas. Yeah, okay. It, there is nothing in there that says single engine, multi-engine, any other speed limits other than top speed and stall speed and fuel limit. Yeah. Nothing. But, okay, but that's the regs. I, I want to know what's the, the actual issues here. It, it, does it get gnarly if you lose an engine in, in this little creekery or something like it? No, like the laser, uh, the single the, the the engine out drill recommended by the manufacturers was to maintain your heading as well as possible, point it toward a safe landing area, and shut down the running engine. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it won't sustain altitude. Like a lot of light twin GA airplane, won't sustain altitude on one engine. Yeah, right. And that part's fine. I, I, it's coming down. I understand that part. I just wonder. But whether... you also didn't want to try to touch down with that much asymmetric thrust. It, as close as they were together, it really come into play when you start to get slower. Right. Right. Cool airplane. I, I'd fly one of these. I mean, if I got the right training and uh, and you know felt like I was ready. But they are they are very cool, very tight, uh, really responsive. Uh, it, it 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 wouldn't hurt to have a little time in in a two seat pit uh, before flying this, just to introduce you to how uh, quick uh, a response you can have out of an airplane. Yeah, the Cree Cree. Kind of cool. The Cree Cree. Cricket. Cricket. The Cricket. Off-field landing of the week. We haven't had one of these in a while, actually, I think. And uh, I don't think we have. Uh, of the month. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. Um, and this one is just, uh, you know, like, Jeb, let's just get, get ready because Dave's going to go. I, I can just see I, it. You know. I know. It's just too too ripe. Even I can come. Um, uh, so this is from the Norwich Bulletin. Uh, I wonder wow. which Norwich we're talking about here. Connecticut. Connecticut. We are talking about Connecticut. Plane crashes in Woodstock cornfield. Uh, pilot not hurt. Uh, Woodstock, Connecticut. Uh, po- a local. Pl- oh, this is a, this is not the Woodstock. This is a Woodstock, Connecticut. Um, it's not Woodstock, New York. No, no correct. Um, and by the way, you, did you know that Woodstock wasn't in Woodstock, New York? 
I only realized this. Here's at Yasger's Farm. Yeah, but Yasger's Farm is like a long ways away from Woodstock, New York. It's yeah, yeah. but that's where the that's where the bus station was. I no no no. It's apparently they couldn't do it in Woodstock because Woodstock smartened up too fast and wouldn't let them, so they had to go elsewhere. But they liked the name Woodstock, so they called it that anyway. Woodstock, Connecticut, though. All right, local police and fire personnel spent Monday afternoon in a Woodstock cornfield, the site of a Sunday plane crash. And I don't think it's a crash, but well, poor a little bit poor of, little Comanche in which the pilot walked away uninjured. Uh, according to preliminary report by the FAA, the Piper PA-24 uh, departed from Woodstock Air- Airport uh, on Sunday and crashed into a cornfield off County Road near the airport. Uh, let's see now. I'm kind of jumping around here. According to State Department of Energy, it's, I'm trying to find any... So, I, I mean, everything's money, fine. The money, the money quote in the whole story... But that's what I'm looking buried, for. What is it? Buried at the end of the fourth graph. Which is, quote, the plane will be removed once the corn is harvested, officials said. Yeah, they're going to leave it there for a while. (laughs) They're going to leave it there. Yeah. Are you like, are you kidding me? Is this the one? There was another story. Is this the same story where the pilots offered to pay for the corn? Yeah. 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 Okay. That's that's the last, that's the last line in the story. Yeah, right. Well, you know, Uh, I I, I don't know. I would imagine that happens all the time, actually. I don't know. An 80 foot by 30 foot swath of destroyed corn. Uh, with the plane, quote, buried in the ground, unquote. Um, yeah, the guy lost his engine. He put it down in a cornfield. And well, you know, I mean, it's... It, it, it's probably fortuitous for the cornfield, the airplane, and the pilot. I know, the I know. The cornfield was there. Yeah, I know. It probably softened the whole thing a little bit. Yeah. You know? And, you know, we're to the season where the corn's getting harvested anyways. Exactly. And, and, and so it's not like the guy's airplane's going to be, you know, there for very long. And the rescue equipment would would wreck a whole bunch more corn. I wouldn't think so. Yeah. So you this know, is what insurance is for. No, well, okay. See, I, I insurance right. insurance covers stuff like this. See, uh-huh. If you're doing it right, insurance will cover this. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, cover removal of the airplane, damage to the crops. Of course, you know he didn't buy the whole farm. He just bought the cornfield. He just bought. He bought a little swath of the cornfield. Uh, a witness, Donald Bennett, who owns Coatney Farm Hills, or Coatney Hills Farm, with his father, said he noticed a plane flying low over his barn on Sunday afternoon. "Quote: It was close to the treetops, and I heard a kaboom." Bennett said, "I walked over, but couldn't see anything. No smoke, but the corn is ten feet high in the field." <laughs> Dude, what else is going on in your cornfield? <laughs> what did you think it was? I'm going to have to call Joaquin Phoenix yeah. out here and 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 Mel Gibson and and, and have them investigate the corn field yeah uh, so the guy, uh, a few hours later, Bennett said a man approached his. A few hours later, a few hours later, Bennett said a man approached his resident. Um, Bennett then said, "He said, Mr. Bennett, I crashed into your cornfield." <laughs> well, he had said, to get all the he had to get all the stems and seeds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, well, that tail hours, so an eighty close. by thirty foot swath of destroyed corn. Plain Vito and to help. Him. Uh, the tail number was eerie. I mean, yeah. What Ours was, was seven three seven three Papa. This one seven three 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 Papa. Yeah. So they came off the line within a couple of weeks of one another. Well, okay. Assuming that, yeah, I see what you're saying. All right. Oh no, that, that no, that's Piper the way it did them in sequence, baby. That's, well, that's the way they did them back then. That's why Piper did them back then, anyway. Yeah. Assuming that, yes. Okay, I, I buy it. I'll buy that. All right. Anyways, congratulations to uh, pilot. Uh, let's He's see. not named. Uh, yeah, he's, he's not, not named, named, is he? Anyways, congratulations to this pilot for getting his airplane down into the cornfield uh, successfully and for offering to pay for the corn. And 
Um, hope he's got his airplane back by now. I don't know. We'll, you know, time will tell. I hope the insurance company doesn't total it. Yeah. The uh, the uh, cluster balloon guy is in the news, uh, and not in a good way. I mean, he's okay. Nothing nothing bad bad happened, but uh, he was going to try and fly his cluster balloon thing all the way across the Atlantic. <laughs> I love this image. This is great. So we've seen the cluster balloon guy before, all right? And he'll take a, like a, almost a lawn chair. I'm sure it's a little bit more substantial than a lawn chair, but basically a chair, and strap <clears throat> you know his gear to the chair, and then the balloons to the chair, and go flying. Well, now he's going across the Atlantic. So what does he strap his balloons to? A boat. Exactly. He's, he's got a boat. Uh, it's like this big rowboat kind of thing here um, with all kinds of ballast and all kinds of lines and, and I'm sure all kinds of other gear for the, for the trip and, and then, then all his little cluster balloons. And he was going to fly across the Atlantic, but uh, he didn't make it. Cluster balloon pilot, what am I reading from? Avweb. Uh, cluster balloon pilot, Jonathan Trapp. It's not Trapp, is it? It's Trip, isn't it? Trapp trap landed short of his goal no kidding on thursday when he maneuvered his unique lighter than aircraft to a safe landing in a remote area on the western coast of newfoundland so he only made it to newfoundland and uh but uh he uh i, I you know i was going to get into a conversation i forget where i was this whole lighter than air thing now so one day we're going to have a conversation about lighter than air and whether that's a proper term all airplanes are lighter than air otherwise they wouldn't be flying no that's not true well, <clears throat> balloons aren't lighter than air. They have weight. The only reason they go up in the air is because you fill them with lift-producing stuff. Whereupon they become lighter than air. Yeah, the same way an airplane becomes uh, lighter than air. No, no, but the airplane never becomes lighter than air. That's right. It's just the a balance of forces. The airplane flies through a mechanical reaction uh, or mechanical response of the air flowing over an airfoil. An air balloon rises because it weighs less than the air. And the and hot air rises uh, generally. It doesn't uh, weigh less. It just has it, it's, it's mass. It, it's mass. It has mass. You're right. It does not weigh less than the air, air it displaces. But the the hot air in the envelope wants to rise uh, as a normal reaction. Therefore, the hot, the rest of the mechanism attached to the envelope goes with it. All you've done with a hot air balloon is encapsulate a thermal. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. You got a you got a big bag of air well, there. There we you go. So does that, does that make a glider? Does that make a glider to, uh, into a lighter than air aircraft? No. It, no. It's another mechanical reaction. Okay. David, what's and, the, this? I, I sent you the link to the Double Eagle Two. I see that. Uh, yeah. That looks like a World War Two landing craft that they would attach uh, to. Well, uh, it's not, but uh, I know. Because of the similarities that struck me between the gondola of the Double Eagle Two and the cluster balloons uh, gondola, if you will, uh, both designed for water arrival should the uh, should the uh, event happen. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of water in the Atlantic Ocean, baby. You want to be able to float on no, it. No, I mean, it makes total sense to me. I, you know, I, I think that the, the rowboat as a gondola is way better than the lawn chair as a gondola in this case. Although, when we saw him take off from Oshkosh in his lawn chair gondola, he flew, off, flew across a lot of water. He so. did. He did. He went across Lake Michigan. Um, well, he went across Lake Winnebago and then Lake Michigan. So. Well, and he, he had water gear for ditching there. I, 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 understand, I believe that, yes. Yeah, he, he, he just didn't expect – he was never going to be more than 30 miles from land. Yes. So, <laughs> so that's uh, – 
Yes. A little bit of trivia about Double Eagle too. It uh, it left with a uh, a uh, Larry Newman designed hang glider that was going to be deployed, and Larry was going to climb down and cut away from the gondola and fly to a landing in Europe ahead of the balloon touching down. Larry Newman, not Alfred E. Newman. Right, Larry Newman, not Alfred E. The big difference. Uh, The late Larry Newman, he's no longer with us. Uh, But he had to jettison the glider uh, when they found themselves in need to lose a lot of weight. Mm Mm-hmm. So he was unable to uh, fulfill that part of his ambition. But uh, Larry was on the crew of the Double Eagle too when they, when they made the first crossing of the Atlantic Ocean by hot air balloon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, 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 we commiserate with uh, cluster balloonist Jonathan Trapp for not quite making it. I'm sure he'll give it another try because he's that kind of a guy. And uh, but well, uh, when first you don't succeed, get more funding. That's right. Yeah. We here at the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. Thank you. This is kind of interesting. The uh, um, I think it's MIT, right? MIT and somebody else. Is it Stanford? Uh, hang on, i got to open the right link here. Uh, Talk about Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Isn't that what I said? I uh, Well, there's there are other institutions with the initials MIT. Yeah, but I'm... The, I, I'm in New England, and okay, Maine? Uh, maybe it's the Maine. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it is. I'm sure that's what it is. Uh, Avweb.com again. Online courses offer advanced aviation education for free. Uh, if you're interested in airplanes and wish you knew more about aerodynamics or air traffic control, which is kind of an interesting pairing there, um, space policy, satellite engineering, or airline management, you can study all those topics and more for free at Massachusetts Institute of Technology via their Open Courseware website. And I think there's another school that's offering a school on the website on the West Coast. This is a pretty cool thing, by the way. If you haven't uh, looked into Open Courseware, um, this MIT program, this Massachusetts Institute of Technology program, um, they're offering a lot of their uh, their classes and programs and courses online for free. And, and you don't get the you know the the certification when you finish the course, but if you simply want to learn some stuff, there's all kinds of amazing things available through Open Courseware. And they've added this. I, I was hoping they were going to put in, you know, sort of an, an aviation ground school kind of thing, you know, so that you could uh, study for. Yeah, they have one here on uh, graduate level course on air traffic control. Yeah, this. I mean, they're just the first two that are aviation related are pretty interesting, um, and uh, maybe there'll be more. I don't know, but uh, but but this is this is kind of cool. The, another one here on aircraft stability and control. There you go. <clears throat> Um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our, our airplane builder folks, if no one, no one else would be interested in this kind of thing to get some, uh, some of the science, some of the physics behind all this stuff. So, uh, uh, online training. I mean, there's already on all sorts of online training. You can go to our friends at Sporties for online training and, and uh, a great many other places. To and get- if you, you know, you can do intro to aerodynamics. Uh, all you need is a little, uh, uh, little, uh, pre-familiarity uh, with vector calculus and differential equations and volume control analysis, and, and you're off and running. I know. There you go. <laughs> and uh, design a cluster balloon, and uh, you'll be all set, right? That's right. There you go. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
What else here? We got, uh, uh, oh, you know, so here's a subject we'll come back to yet again. Um, we talked a long time, a bunch of episodes ago, about the Redbird flight simulators. And then I thought I had heard somewhere along the line about a, uh, a program that was putting Redbird flight simulators into storefronts, into kind of like mall um, uh, storefronts, so that people, regular people could go in and, and, and uh, you know, put your quarters in the machine and, and, and fly the Redbird simulators. Um, and then we heard from a listener who told us, told us about a different program that was a storefront, you know, flight sim program. But now I've heard from um, a listener here um, who has told us, this is referring us to a flying magazine article, Continental Motors takes training off airport. Uh, I spent last Friday at the mall. Well, not just any mall, the Eastern Shore Center, an upscale mall in Spanish Fort, Alabama. Um, And uh, I believe this is the, yeah, Redbird Flight Simulators. And so uh, this may be the the thing that I had heard about. Um, It's... Yeah, they were, they they had a couple of announcements at Oshkosh. um, developing a, a standardized Cessna 172 configuration, um, things like that. Right. Um, they've got a wide range of uh, simulator products. Redbird and people are really, really smart they're people. They're very innovative. Yeah, yeah. very innovative. And they've kind of come, I was going to say out of nowhere, I don't mean exactly nowhere, but they've, they've, they've you know... Th- they came on the scene relatively short time ago, and um, they're doing some really cool things. I mean, you know, just for starters, their flight simulators are very, very cool. Um, um, relatively simple devices. I mean, unlike the flight sims that we see at, like, you know, flight safety and, and, and those kinds of things. But uh, um, but still, you know, complex and real real uh, uh, trainers, real, real training tools. Um, but... Uh, you know, the news here, of course, is they're doing this in a you know shopping mall, and that is kind of cool, and, and that's kind of where I you know, yeah. you know, add to the whole you know they're very smart and innovative people. They, they you know you mentioned the uh, they're working with some folks to devise a standardized training platform aircraft um, that you alluded to a minute ago, Jeb, and uh, and doing this kind of stuff, and uh, it's uh, I'm, I'm you know it's a shame there's not some device or system <laughs> to do what? What is it you want to know so, about? I want to know about more about what the the EAA coverage was. Um, yeah, well, you know, maybe one of these days we get the editor of one of the EAA publications on this public. Yeah, that'd be that'd be fun. That'd be fun. David, do you have any recollection of what we wrote about during Oshkosh of the uh, of the Redbird uh, flight trainer stuff? Oh yeah, uh, we did a whole lot on their uh, on their uh, airplane uh, because that was a collaboration of multiple companies that were right. exhibiting it at, at the show. Uh, and I remember that one of the elements of the coverage that we did was how uh, Redbird has continued to pursue, shall we say, alternative approaches to flight training and to attracting students uh, because they seem to be one outfit that gets the fact that you can't keep redesigning the same crap hanging a new label on the same crap and expecting different results from the same crap when it comes to attracting people to an activity when there's so much competition in other activities that cost less and don't require a trip out to the airport where the people will speak in a language seemingly designed to drive you away. Right. Well, there is that, but uh, yeah. 
and the Continental Motors they're referring to in this story is that the Continental Motors that makes the engines? Or yeah, yeah, okay, yep. Um, Continental Teledyne Motors used to be Teledyne Continental okay, Motors, that's but not with. not not since the uh, uh, Chinese bought it. Yeah. Now it's just Continental. So this story is referring to the Zulu. Just Zulu, a simulator-based experimental flight training center run by Continental Motors. Uh, Zulu flight training powered by Redbird. Yeah. Um, Continental Motors president Rhett Ross said that Zulu is a way to take an activity that is, quote, expensive and can be intimidating, end quote, and take it to the people instead of making the people come to us. Uh, Continental CFO and a student, uh, uh, Bill Reed, Continental CFO and a student pilot himself, said that the company hopes to take the model and, quote, expand it across the country and around the world, end quote. So uh, this is the thing that I had heard about, the uh, putting Redbird flight simulators in uh, storefronts, mall storefronts. Right. Um, well, Cessna tried something like this with the, what did they call it, Hangar 10 years ago? I'm not familiar with that. What was that? I don't remember that. I don't either. They they had a, a flight training. Center. That the, they kept the aliens right at Hangar Ten. They had flight training centers set up in retail malls in a lot of the big cities, where you could buy the books, the chachka, where you could start the ground school, uh, and sign up for courses without ever setting foot at the airport, and they staffed them. Uh, maybe it was Hangar 1 instead of Hangar 10. I don't remember now. I'd have to go back to the Magic Machine here and go back to a time before most of this stuff was on Magic Machines. Uh, I'm talking late 70s, early 80s, uh, where Cessna was looking for a way to further expand the Cessna Pilot Center footprint uh, into environments that people that they weren't reaching because those people weren't coming to the airports out of curiosity. Uh, lasted for a few years. I don't believe that it ever got critical mass because the uh, real spool up for that was happening at the same time the piston engine market was imploding mm-hmm. from yeah. 70, 79, 80 through about 86 when Cessna stopped building piston airplanes altogether. <laughs> uh, cool program. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, you know, good creative thinking. We, uh, we, we, we hope it. Just, we hope it works. Absolutely. Well, yeah. You know, one of the things we've not talked about here. What's um, uh, Is this announcement? This recent announcement by AOPA that it's no longer going to do summits or expos. Yeah. They're, they're going to do the 2013 edition. But um, the the 2014 and subsequent events are you know canceled slash on hold. Uh, instead, what do you think that means? Well, <laughs> what they what they're going to do, according to the press release, is suspend holding its annual aviation summit in favor of reaching more members where they fly. The object is to do more outreach, um, uh, regional events, local events, things like this. Um, this is this is a break. This is, this is from the new uh, president mm-hmm. of uh, AOPA, Mark Baker, yeah. uh, in a press release earlier this month saying, one of my biggest priorities is to meet members in venues that tr- truly spark their passion. I want our members to make personal connection with AOPA, and that is best achieved by meeting them where they fly. 
Um, so, you know, we should do like a UCAP fly-in or something, you know, and, and get Baker and, and uh, supporting cast to join us. Um, no, I, 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 I agree. Well, I hadn't heard about the fly-in part. I think we should definitely do a fly-in. Uh, I, we've had conversations with listeners and yeah, ourselves yeah. for many times over the years about the idea of doing a fly-in. The question is, where would we do a fly-in? If we were going to do a first oh. fly-in, I'm serious here, and maybe we shouldn't do this in public. Maybe we'll, I don't know whether this conversation will yeah, be. Yeah, let's not do this in no, public. No, no, come on. What a, come on, chicken. Oh, no, no. <laughs> it, it's really easy. We should do this at Hartsfield. At Atlanta. <laughs> Hearts, yeah. wait, where's Hartsfield? Yeah. Atlanta, Atlanta Hartsfield. We'll do it as signature. Atlanta Hartsfield. Yeah, okay. That's 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 the uh, that's the the uncontrolled airspace style. Uh, right. FBO right. and airport. All right. right. I guess we exactly. will have this conversation exactly. off. We will have this conversation. <laughs> okay. And I'm being at, completely at the next board meeting. At the next board meeting. At the next board meeting. Getting back to AOPA for a second, I'm trying to remember the timing here. Um, they changed the name from Expo to Summit during uh, President Fuller's. Um, um, administration, if you will, did the um, did the AOPA that was Hodgson Hodgson H O D G S O N did the AOPA uh, uh, fly in at Frederick go away during his uh, his reign as well? Uh, yep, it hasn't been held lately. Let's put it that. Well, way. yeah, and they stopped it uh, like from one year. To, I mean, they announced it. It's not like it was a big mystery. They they, they announced that they were no longer going to because the AOPA fly in was cool. I went a couple times, and I just I thought it, too. I thought I mean, it was it, a nice it, it, event. It, 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 it was really a very successful one day deal. Yeah, and 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 a, a few years back, they just from one year to the next announced that they weren't going to do it any longer, and they and 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 that was maybe coincidentally, maybe not around the same time that they changed the name of Expo to summit and uh, and uh, AOPA I mean as as you, you you pointed out a few minutes ago um they're kind of going back to a little bit more of a grassroots thing and uh, um I so what I'm getting at here is how long before the uh, the Frederick Flyin is resumed That's, well hopefully it will be yeah, yeah. Um, it it, it could be one of the regional fly-ins yeah, yeah. sure so yeah. Uh, um I, I I agree Jeb I I think this is a, 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 a I like this better than the old way. I, I don't want to point too many fingers at the old at at, uh, at President Fuller's choices. Well, I, I don't want but. to point any fingers. I mean, the the um, um, you know Expo Summit they've been around predating Fuller, um, and you know back in the Baker day and Baker one days they had the plantation party. Thank you. So oh, there, really? there, there have been annual events, um, uh, centralized annual events the OPAs run um, for as long as I can remember uh, on one level or another. Um, that was back in the day when they were still, for example, headquartered in, in Bethesda, Maryland. Right. Uh, when, they, when they moved out to Frederick, I guess that was in the 80s, Dave. Um, when they moved 1980, out to Frederick. 1983. Yeah. Uh, when they moved out to Frederick, they, they, you know, hey, boom, hey, there's a runway here. You know, we, we can have people fly to us instead of having to drive or, or mm-hmm. uh, whatever. And that opened up a lot of opportunities. And they had the, the fly-in, a tour of, of uh, the headquarters building. And, of course, you know, a lot of the staff are around. And, and there's static displays. There's, there's booths and, and all kind, you know, uh, kind of a carnival atmosphere uh, on, on one level or another. Um, Summit is not like that. Summit's a trade show. Expo is a trade show. The Plantation Party was a was a, a trade show. Um, and what what AOPA is saying is we're not going to do a trade show for a year or so. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to do this it, other thing. Plantation Party was less the trade show of all of them. Yeah. It really was 
a get together for members with some workshops and a little bit of airplane display. Uh, but the early plantation parties didn't have an exhibit hall and all that stuff. Right. Uh, when they evolved it, uh, stopped calling it plantation party because of uh, a perception that that was going to be negatively perceived by some people that they wanted to attract as members. Uh, they tried to keep the relevance and the members get together aspect of it. Uh, intact, but to give some of the exhibitors that were supporting it a little more opportunity to show their wares. Mm -hmm. When we moved into the full-blown expo era late in Baker's time, I mean late in uh, Boyer's time, uh, it really boomed for a while. I mean, it, right. it got so big that it outgrew some of their repeat facilities, right. the places that they went to again and again. Like Palm Springs uh, used to fit into a nice little small uh, convention hall and eventually grew to where they had to add outside buildings to accommodate all of it. And then it started to shrink. And Mr. Uh, Fuller came along, wanted to completely redo it, make it a summit. Uh, the focus of it became less and less what was there and the people who were there and more a multimedia extravaganza aimed at the folks who didn't come, which kind of cannibalized their audience a little bit. If you can get all this stuff through streaming and online right, stuff, right. why are you going to spend the money to go down there? Right. And this year's summit, and I don't know if you guys have seen it, uh, but it, and I can't give you a quantitative, fully vested comparison, but I've had more promotional material trying to get me to go to Fort Worth this year than I remember in a decade or a decade and a half really? trying to get me to attend their Recently? convention. Recently? Yeah. I mean, since the first of the year. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, well, and it's just gotten more and more intense as we've gotten closer. Uh, and most of this stuff is expensive mailings, not just email pings. you right. got to come to Summit, but fairly expensive mailers. Uh and at a time when AOPA has been struggling against membership losses, or the, that, uh, I, I don't know, for some reason happened the last four or five years, uh, the, uh, the, the question begins to, to be, you know, have they passed a critical mass point? Are they now at the point where it's not going to even break even? Hence, I think the the reexamination by the new Mr. Baker, right. and uh, and an attempt to look for another way to achieve the same results. I wish him luck with it. Yeah, I wish him luck. You know, I, you know, no. As much as we love to beat on ILPA, nobody wishes them ill. Oh no, no, um, not at all. But you know, they, we want to see him succeed. Absolutely. Um, some of the things they do don't make a lot of sense to us uh, from from where we sit. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll wait and see, but uh, we'll kind of wait and see what the uh, what the changes bring. We'll wait and see what uh, this year's uh, summit is like. Um, but um, I, I'm I mean, not sure if this summit, year's summit is going to be a good yardstick of anything because 
they're they that's a good point man you know, that's a very good point, point. They're, they're not you know they're saying we're not doing this anymore so whatever it is they're doing at this summit is well, you know it's kind of all bets are off um the flip side of which is hey this is the last summit this is the last um big show aopa is going to have for a while i, I okay and you know, you know y'all come i'm not sure yes yeah, so you, I, I you mean, don't you don't want to miss the last round. Yeah, well, you, you know, know, there's that. And, and I think it's still going to be a fun show. If it was near, more nearby, I, I would go. Uh, the yeah, only reason I'm yeah. not going is it's all the way down in Texas. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, regardless of the fact that, that they're changing strategies, if you will, I think this is going to be a fun event because it's always been about, you know, kind of a gathering of the tribes. It's always been about, you know, airline, air, airline, air aviation people, airplane people getting together um, and, and, you know, seeing what's going on and all that kind of stuff. And it'll still be that. It'll still be a great way to, to kind of, you know, get in touch and talk to your friends and, talk, you, know, you know, see what's going on in the industry. But, but as far as what the future, this, I don't think this tells us very much at all. And uh, I mean, the future for AOPA doesn't tell us very much at all. I really, what I want to see is what are the first three or four of these new style things that they do? You know, what what type of fly-ins does Baker Two go to? You know, and uh, they could very well wind up tapping a larger audience in total yeah. than what they've been getting at their, in, their at their annual event. Because one of the What's the challenges apple? of planning the annual event has been where. You know, West Coast one year, East Coast one year, Southeast New England, uh, Texas is probably as close as it ever gets to the middle of the country. Uh, California has had, you know, a, a large share of them. Southern California sometimes, Northern California sometimes. Uh, we've been to a couple of them in Florida, different spots in Florida, too. Yeah. Uh, New England, Connecticut, a couple of times. Uh, Jeb and I work one in uh, Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, strangely enough, the very middle of the country was always the part that seemed to get skipped the most. But uh, Fort Worth, I think, was their attempt to, to try to fill that spot on the map. Uh, I'm like you guys. I want to see them succeed. It's going to be interesting to see the locales that they pick for these right. regionals yeah. and how they schedule them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting. And, uh, um, and I like the idea of us doing something or somehow e- either we create our own fly-in or we go to one of these fly-ins that they're at and uh, crash the party. And cra- well, yeah, sure. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, I like that too. Um, and, uh, and you know, you know, you cap on the road kind of thing. Anyways, you cap undercover. Yeah. <laughs> you cap after dark. Shout outs. What do we got here? I got. Uh, I wanted to call attention to this one article. I, I just thought this was a cool article. I, those of us who go to Oshkosh, especially those of us who go on a regular basis, is nothing really new in this article. But it, it's a good article, and it's especially good given that it's from um, a website that has the word airline in its name, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, uh, freelance writer Malcolm Muir. Uh, writing on airlinereporter.com, uh, just does a, a nice uh, Oshkosh uh, Air Venture wrap up uh, story. And uh, um, I, I liked the story. I thought it was a nice, fair, you know, uh, a good uh, telling of the uh, the Oshkosh experience. And, uh, um, you know, check it out. And uh, did you guys look at the story? Any, any? You didn't look at it. I, I did look at it and uh, was uh, intrigued by the 
interesting selection of photographs that he's pulled together to try to give us a a, a, a visual scope. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people that have never been there and don't know what we're talking about. So, uh, you know, hats off to them. Yeah, it's a nice piece, and uh, you know, I mean, I, we we often bash um, the non GA uh, media for stories about GA, and I just kind of wanted to call attention to a nice one from from an, an airline pub. So that's that one. Any other shout-outs here? I've got one more. David, you got any shout-outs? No, sir. No. One quick last shout-out, I guess, then, is uh, this is a program that I I remember hearing about and thinking it was a good idea a couple years back, and then I kind of lost sight of it. And I didn't even – this article is what made me realize that it actually had reminded me that it had begun and that it was going. And this is the uh, Eagle Flights. This is the grown-up version of the Young Eagle program that EAA um, uh, uh, announced a a couple years back and have been running, and, in fact, they've reached their one thousandth eagle flight um this is the whole idea behind this is in the same way that we've been trying to inspire young people to get um, involved in general aviation by giving free airplane rides to kids uh we want uh we we learned in that program i i've been a little bit involved and i've talked to a lot of people who have been very involved with young eagle flights that one thing you see all the time is that the parents want an airplane ride too, all right? right? And the Young Eagle program doesn't really allow them to give the parents, it has to do with the way the insurance works and things like that, and, and just seat availability, so the number of seats that are available. Um, and so uh, uh, EAA a number of years ago said we should do a, a grown-up version. They didn't put it in these words, but they said we should do a grown-up version of, of Young Eagles. Um, fortunately, they didn't give it a dumb name, you know, which they could have easily have done, and they simply call it Eagle Flight. And they, uh, it, it, this is a uh, from the EA.org website. EAA marks one thousandth Eagle Flight in first year. Uh, EAA's year-old Eagle Flights program, which provides one-on-one flight experience and pathways for adults interested in becoming a pilot, marked its one thousandth flight on August tenth at in Hickory, North Carolina. Uh, and uh, Bradley Bormuth, uh, EA member 423388 of Hickory, Chapter 731, uh, took a, a grown-up, uh, Joshua Austin, for a flight in his Cessna 172. This is a great thing, and uh, um, wanted to call attention to uh, Eagle Flights. So if you're an EA member and not already in, in involved in Eagle Flights, maybe you're a, a young Eagle Flyer, or maybe you're neither, um, these are both great programs to get involved with to uh, help popularize aviation to people who are not currently involved in it. Anything you want to guys want to add to that? No? Okay. Uh, that's Jeb Burnside out there. Uh, Jeb is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, you been working on anything fun? Uh, not for the last couple of days. Um, trying to get body and soul flying in a close formation once again mm-hmm. yeah, after uh, some heavy lifting on a few projects. But uh, uh, getting geared back up and uh, looking forward to the rest of the month. Cool. And where can people yeah. find what you do on the Internet? Oh, I don't know why they'd want to do that, but um, let's see. AviationSafetyMagazine.com is a great place to start. Uh, AEA.net, um, uh, where I do some writing. Uh, it's occasionally on AvWeb.com. Yep. And on the Twitter? On the Twitter, uh, Burnside J, and somewhere on the Facebook. And Dave Higdon uh, is an aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, repeat after me. Say the word Summit. Summit? Cessna. Cessna. <laughs> Cluster balloon. 
bite me. <laughs> Where, what have you been working on, David? Anything fun? Uh, yeah. Uh, but I've been away from the desk for a few days, and none of this is fresh in my brain. That's fine. Where can people uh, find you on the Internet to learn about what Oh, com for world aircraft sales. Uh, where I've got a number of pieces coming up, including an interview in the October issue with Ed Bolin at NBAA going into the uh, convention next month. Uh, AEA.net, along with Mr. Burnside there, where they uh, uh, are nice enough to uh, play some of my work. Uh, and here, there, and about... Uh, Roll the dice, do a Google search, and then throw a pin. Just don't hit your computer with a pin. There we go. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, learn about my Kindle eBooks at amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. You can follow me on the Twitter at twitter.com slash Jack Hodgson. And please sign up for my email newsletter uh, no more than once a week. I'll be sending out information about my publications and the other things that I'm working on. There's a link to the subscription form and a lot of other information about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Uh, big thanks to Jeff Ward for his help with the show notes and in the forums. Uh, don't forget to check out the rest of the ECA, uh, ECAP, the UCAP website. Web, ECAP, where did that come from? Say UCAP. It's iOS 7.0. That's The UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. You can see who's doing what on the new ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, were you going to say something? Go fly, live long, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye. Yeah, that's enough talking. Let's go flying. All I can say is it's a good thing Dave doesn't have a stutter. <laughs>